Good afternoon and welcome to the 172nd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of friendship and loss in the age of COVID-19 with writer Jared Meisner. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 18th, 2020, there are 1,343,790 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In the United States, there are 11,400,796 cases up from 11,289,297. There are now a total of 249,187 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 248,001 reported yesterday. I'd like to introduce you to my guest today, Really pleased to bring Jared Meisner to COVID Calls. Jared's a writer who lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's a graduate of the Journalism College at the University of Florida. And now he's the social media manager at Davidson College. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Our State Magazine, Charlotte Magazine, and the Chronicle of Higher Education. Jared, thanks so much for making time to join me today. Thanks so much for having me. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and how the pandemic is looking there today. Sure. Uh, like you mentioned, I'm uh, calling in from Charlotte, North Carolina. And right now, the the latest update, the Governor Roy Cooper of North Carolina recently uh, re- decided to remain in phase three uh, because cases are on the rise as they are nationally. So we are remaining in phase three of our opening plan in the state. So what does that mean for the college? Uh, the college, well, it's a good question. So uh, students are about to go home. Uh, we decided to send students home at Thanksgiving um, and not bring them back until uh, January. But right now students are about to finish up their fall semester um, and go home for about eight weeks. So you were able to get through the fall semester without we incident? Yeah, we were. We gave uh, The college gave students the option of returning or doing co- classes completely online. Um, so students were given that option. Um, But case loads were relatively low throughout the entire semester, thankfully. That's great to hear. And it's a completely residential college. So the ones who came were there on campus. Yes. Um, Most of the classes were still online. um, So it was really a matter of do students want to return and be able to see their friends in a socially distant way or not. Interesting. And what about you? Are you able to work from campus or have you remained I have been able to when when needed, but I've been working from home mostly since March. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the permutations of what people have experienced in higher education, faculty, staff, alumni who are used to coming to campus at certain times, everybody, there's so many different versions of hybridity I wasn't aware of. And what you just described, even rooms where faculty are teaching students in the room and who are also distant. Uh, what a time. What's it been like doing social media for Davidson at this time? It's interesting, uh, mostly because my job my job can be done remotely regardless of the situation. Uh, but given the circumstances, it's an interesting thing to juggle the tone, um, specifically when we're asking students to move out. Uh, back in March, that was uh, really stressful for a while. Uh, obviously, students had a lot of questions, directing their student, directing their answer questions uh, via social media. That was really stressful. Um, but as far as the logistics, my job can be done remotely regardless. So that's been a very big plus, And I'm very lucky about that. People are consuming a lot more social media at this time. Yes, um, it is. 
it's in, again, as I said, it's been interesting to match the tone and the quantity of information that people want and need right now. So that's been an adjustment for sure. Yeah, it's it, at Drexel where I am. Uh, it's been interesting. You know, the, I have such respect for the people in the communications office, and um, they manage you know daily newsletter, annual magazine, all of the normal publications. But then these official um, announcements from the president's office and knowing how to pace that so people don't lose interest in them must be incredibly hard. And I assume that must tap a little bit into your responsibilities as well. Oh, for sure. It's a, it's a constant struggle of which uh, you know communication platform we're gonna use for this. So the right audience sees it and the right audience isn't tuned out. Um, and that's a, that's a constant battle for us all the time in the office um, and the alumni office as well. Well, I was, I was so glad you said yes to the invitation to come on. Uh, you've been writing this year, um, I assume about lots of things, but um, I found you through your work about your friend, Alison Schwartz, and um, published a number of pieces about the friendship and what it's been like this year for you. I wonder if you wouldn't, ordinarily I read an obituary at the beginning of COVID calls, but you were kind enough to agree to read Alison's obituary. Would it be okay if you read that now? Sure. Okay. Um, a little background, I suppose, uh, might be yeah. helpful. Uh, yeah. But Allison, uh, when her grandmother died about a year before, she wrote this non-traditional obituary for the Palm Beach Post in West Palm Beach in Southern Florida. Um, and the obituary was so unique and so non-traditional that uh, a Palm Beach Post reporter actually interviewed her about the obituary. Mm -hmm. um, and she, she was always a prolific writer and a remarkable writer. So I obviously decided our obituary about her could not be traditional. Uh, so we sort of wrote a very non-traditional obituary. I will pull that up. Okay, I'll turn it over to you and I'll come back in a minute. Sounds good. Uh, Alison Brooke Schwartz, whose eyes rolled out of her head each time you spelled her name with two L's, would not want you to read her obituary. So if you'd like, please turn away now. Thank you very much. On April 28, 2020, at the age of 29, she would like you to know she was not and never will be 30. Allison accepted her latest promotion as editor-in-chief of all future Ouija board communications, where she hopes to share celebrity gossip about Benjamin Franklin's latest bifocal trends and Anna Nicole Smith's newest donut cleanse with the living world. Allison was a gifted yet humble writer whom you might recognize from her most well-known pieces, including a book about her mother, Robin Schwartz's Heat, an article in The Independent Florida Alligator, where she, quote, worked her ass off on her way up from a writer to city editor to the arts and style editor about the movie theater crowds at the latest Twilight movie, to hard-hitting investigative journalism at People magazine, where she rose in the ranks from an intern to the director of digital platforms about Emma Stone's favorite lip gloss, which is cherry, by the way. Upon the news of her death, stock in Mark Jacobs, Kate Spade, and Yankee Candle tanked their most prolifically spending customer now more interested in what angel wings to buy from a woman on Etsy, to whom she will probably ask if there's a two for one discount. Allison never met an animal she didn't smother with love. She fostered rappers in college and before pawning one off on her parents so she could rescue another, bought them yogurt drops with which to spoil them. She had a particular affection for her family's brood of guinea pigs and shih tzus, but did not discriminate with her love for dogs. She was unfailingly funny, able to make her many friends laugh and even the memo line of Venmo, and she was remarkably generous. One of her final good deeds, which she would be horrified to learn was made public, was to send one of her college roommates, who is now a nurse, a gift card to thank her for her work. That friend would use the gift card to buy more clinical masks for her team to help fight the coronavirus that would eventually kill Allison. She is survived by the millions of dogs she had yet to pet, hundreds of face masks that she had yet to apply, and an approximate truckload of two liter Diet Coke bottles she had yet to drink. In lieu of flowers, please send an inordinate amount of money at Michael's, build a shed at your home specifically for Halloween decorations, and bake pumpkin flavored breads without consideration of I mean, usually you would say, thank you for reading that. And, and usually you would say, um, we'll try to get through this without 
crying, but that one, it, you, it seems like you'd say, let's try to get through this without laughing. I mean, you captured so many dimensions of this person. Um, and as you said, the tone was one kind of following on an obituary she had written. Mm -hmm. That's who she was. Um, you know, she was, and I, I don't use hyperbole when I say this, she was the funniest person that I've ever known. Um, she made me laugh at all times and she would have, I don't like to project, uh, but this is what she would have wanted. She would have wanted something non-traditional, something that stood out. Um, and that's who she was at her core. Just very, very funny, very, very kind. So would you um, mind telling us your origin story with Allison? Sure. That's a funny one too. Uh, so in 2008, uh, when I, Alice and I were freshmen at the University of Florida, uh, we, I had met her roommates, uh, at a communal function at our dorm. Um, it was a midnight breakfast or something like that before classes actually began the week before. Um, and so I was hanging out with my roommates in her roommate room, watching a movie one night or something like that. And, um, they had started talking about something and we had started talking about, um, a, a boy I had a crush on or something like that. And Allison came, I had not met her yet. I, I was friends with her roommates. So she came sort of traipsing in um, and she said, oh my God, I have a gay friend too from high school. Um, and she was obviously just trying to make friends in the best <laughs> way she could. Um, and I just get stone cold face uh, and I go, I'm not gay. Um, and she just immediately is just mortified and she shuffles back out going, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, and I go, oh, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> and then from there, you know, it was history. We, um, she was the first person I told when I changed my major in college two months after beginning um, to the journalism college. And she sort of gave me the courage to realize that my life plan that I had set out for myself since elementary school looks like we might have frozen uh for a second i imagine that looks i think we froze there for a second jared can you hear me okay yeah okay we lost you there for a second you you were you're just finishing up the last part of that of that story, though. So, can you tell us a, a little bit about the kinds of things that that became sort of institutions for you and Allison? You don't have to share all the inside jokes. I'm sure there's a million of them based on what you've told me. But some of the things you really like to do together. Sure. Uh, we obviously we worked together for about a year and a half at the Independent Florida Alligator, which was the college's newspaper. Um, we, the last semester we worked there, we shared an office together. Uh, I was the opinions editor and she was the arts and uh, entertainment editor. Uh, so we would share an office together and sort of just close the door and laugh to each other. Um, we went on three or so three road trips together, which we really loved. We loved sort of going to small towns that really had nothing to do and, um, bizarre tourist attractions, um, that was sort of our thing. So stopping at garage sales and picking up jams at you know, little roadside stands. Um, and really we just, I mean, it was the sort of friendship where you don't really necessarily have to do something with somebody. You just go over just to be with uh, them. And that was, you know, it's increasingly unique and rare to have somebody who you can just sort of sit with um, and enjoy. You know, the road trip is often heralded as the great test of a friendship, right? And all those miles and all of those, uh, you know, stops you make along the way, finding humor in places where you wouldn't expect it. That's where I can really relate to that uh, as an experience. Yeah. Um, and and so then uh, recently you were not living in the same in the same town. Yeah. Um, she had moved right after college, um, as I mentioned in the obituary, she was interning with People Magazine uh, while we were in college, and she was fortunate enough to then freelance for them while we were in college, and then again, fortunate enough uh, to be offered a job uh, when we graduated in 2012. So the last uh, eight years, she had been living in New York City, and then I had been living in Charlotte for the vast majority of that time. 
So we would typically see each other every Labor Day weekend. We would go somewhere, uh, usually Delaware or somewhere sort of in the middle. Um, and then I would typically see her for Halloween weekend as well. I would fly up to New York. So her career with People Magazine was really, um, I mean, she'd already worked there for eight years, you said? Mm -hmm. Yep. She, uh, she worked her way up. She started as an intern, like I said. And uh, by the end, she was directing their digital platforms, which means, you know, she was running their Snapchat Discover page and all things like that. So it was, she was a, she was a pretty big deal. Did she, she liked, it sounds like popular culture was really important to her and she was really up on all of it. She knew everything. When um, something, when a rumor was happening or something, I always knew to check with her um, about the Kardashians or something like that, because obviously she would have, she would have everything. So um, I wonder then if maybe we can talk a little bit about this year and Maybe um, you wrote this piece, which was published on April 7th uh, in Charlotte Magazine. The title was What It's Actually Like When a Loved One Has COVID-19. Tell us a little bit about when you first heard she was sick. And and, and maybe is it something she was worried about? Give us a, a little bit of the story leading up to that, if you could. Sure. Um, probably for about... A week or two before, um, she, and this was obviously would have been, you know, mid to late March. So it's when things were really just blowing up and happening uh, really quickly. Um, and she had mentioned that she had a temperature and she was tired all the time. So naturally, our, our first thought was that you, know, you probably have COVID. Um, she was in New York, as I said. Um, but the hospital in New York that time were so overwhelmed that she went to two virtual visits and the doctors essentially told her, unless you need to go to the emergency room, unless you cannot breathe, um, don't come. Uh, so she was sort of told to sort of manage it on her own at uh, home. And so for those week or two, she was relatively fine, had a temperature, um, you know, a little fatigued. So I would, I would check in with her twice a day and, you know, ask, you know, I know I'm being annoying, but I need a temperature check from you. Um, just need to know how you're doing. Um, and then, you know, I get a text on, I believe it was uh, beginning of April um, from her roommate that let me know that Allison had been admitted to the ICU. Um, and from there, she never left. And she was on a ventilator for three weeks or so off and on. Um, and yeah, so it was very quick all of a sudden. I had to go to the ICU and then was there for three weeks. Yesterday, <laughs> I was talking with Ryan Hagen, who's doing an oral history of the experience of COVID in New York. And he was on talking with me initially April 6th. We went back and looked and there were around 8,400 deaths to that point uh, and in the United States. So this is really early in the pandemic. I mean, at that time, we didn't see it that way. Obviously, now we're closing in on 250,000. But those were very early days and hard to get information. And what you're describing about being told that the hospital is overwhelmed, it's, it's a lot to try to make sense of very quickly. What was going through your mind when you got that text saying she was actually in ICU? Well, um, you know, I... As I wrote in that first article, there was there was no part of me then that thought it would end up as it did. Um, I was I was hopeful, and I you know I texted her that morning um, that whenever she got this, you know I wanted to talk about the latest soups that we were making, um, and so. I never thought that it would end up as it did. Um, it was it was never sort of gloom and doom until a couple of days later um, when I found out how bad it actually was. But that first that first text, I was not super super worried, which I guess also just shows how naive we all were at that point. You know, we didn't have mask mandates at that point. You know, we it was a bizarre time, and so I guess we were all sort of naive. I, that was one part of the. 
that article. I'm just going to give a quote from it that appeared in Charlotte magazine, and I'll tweet this out later. People can find this um, tremendous piece. What it's actually like when I lo when a loved one has COVID nineteen, and even that, because the pandemic at that time was so localized in just a few parts of the country, that experience was not relatable to most people yet. I mean, you were really sending uh, a message out. A, a personal experience that most Americans couldn't relate to yet. And you wrote, today, as I type this, my best friend is unconscious, locked away in isolation for the second day in the intensive care unit of Greenwich Hospital outside New York City as a ventilator breathes for her and keeps her alive as she fights to survive COVID-19. I think, I mean, it's a, it's a very powerful sentence and it's one that you were reporting something that most people had no reference for at that time. I think we, you know, I think we forget that too. Um, that was obviously part of why I wrote that. Um, you know, even I wrote in the article how even I, at that time, you know, like you said, it was a localized issue that didn't affect all of us. And it's so bizarre to think about that now and how I would, how anybody could ever view it as that. Um, but that's obviously part of the reason I wrote it because it was very, uh, very directly affecting me all of a sudden, and I needed people to know that this was a very real thing that had very real consequences. Also, the, the situation of a friend who's not in New York, who has a friend who's in New York suffering, it it must have really resonated because that was a lot of people's experience that they were worried about a family member in Seattle or San Francisco or in New York at that time did you yeah. did, it, did it feel like a premonition in some way i mean did it cross your mind like this is this is something that people here in charlotte are going to have to relate to soon or was it still for you distant that's really fascinating to think about um because at the time i would say that it felt distant uh, it felt like i was as you said, I would text my friends when the lockdowns happened in California and in San Francisco and Seattle. Um, you know, I remember texting my friends there and saying, oh, you know, how are you? How are things? And to think about that sentiment now is bizarre uh, because it felt so distant and localized, as you said. Um, and because now it's just so ever-present and omnipresent everywhere we look now. Um, so it's it's bizarre and naive to think that I would ever have thought that way. One of the things that I was so moved by in that piece too, and you mentioned it a minute ago, is that you're, um, when you have a friend, a best friend, and I can 100% relate to this, who are in other parts of the country, but we've grown very used to constant flow of communication. Uh, I have an unbroken stream of communication with friends all over the country, like texts where you never bother to finish a thought because it's just going to get picked up. And I, I, I think you probably can relate to what I'm talking about. And you, you, you describe in that piece, I mean, that sense you describe your friend who is intubated at that point, I assume. And at the same time, you're calling and texting. So you, you're still communicating mm -hmm. at that at that point. Um, I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit more because there is a lot of optimism in that. There was, um, there was a lot of optimism and uh, for probably, like I said, probably for about a week, um, I just assumed she would answer my text, she would call me back. Um, and there was, there was a definite sense of optimism and that was, um, part of what made it so terrible at the same time was because it was such a prolonged sense of misery of not knowing what was going to happen. Um, that's what also partly made it worse. So I'm, on one hand, glad for the optimism because I had that hope for so while, but also very angry at that optimism because it was so misplaced. Um, so, but yeah, I fully expected her to call me back, and I still have her number in my phone and you know, sort of my favorites. And it's, it's a very weird thing to think about technologically, how we have to erase somebody from our lives. So what were those, what were those weeks like? And, and what was it 
how did you get the word that she didn't make it? I mean, it was horrible. Um, not again, it's not hyperbole to say they were the worst weeks of my life. Um, I would not wish that upon anybody. It was a constant, constant crying, um, constant having to call into work uh, because my brain and my emotional state was in nowhere where it needed to be. Um, a lot of laying in bed with the dogs um, that I have here. Um, a lot of rereading the notes that we had saved uh, from her. And um, her, you know, I talked to her dad probably two, three times a day. Um, her brother is a pulmonologist, just coincidentally. Um, so he was able to get updates and sort of translate some of the medical jargon uh, for us. And so we get updates from her brother, Adam, uh, um, frequently. And but every single time I get a text or I woke up to a call or something, it was always, my God, is this the one that tells me my best friend is dead? Um, so it was constantly on edge for three weeks, constantly thinking the worst um, and constantly expecting the worst. Um, and when it, uh, what finally happened was she spiked a very, very, very high fever. And uh, so she had to be put on dialysis uh, and the dialysis machine wasn't really working. Um, so what actually happened was because of her fever that spiked so high, uh, it, I guess, in, in not knowing the specific medical language, um, it ceased some of her brain function. Um, so when they did a CAT scan of her, uh, they saw that she had, you know, had no more brain function because of that high fever. And so they pulled her off for incubation, pulled her off life support. So her dad, um, her brother actually was the one who called me and told me that. It sounds like, it sounds like, like in terms of communication, you were basically, you're, you're an extension of the family. You're, you're part of the family. I was, um, I was really lucky uh, that they included me in so many things. Um, they would, the nurses there, bless their hearts, uh, would, you know, organize Zoom calls on, uh, you know, one of their cell phones, the nurses' cell phones, and they would just set it up in the room and, uh, you know, do their normal thing. Um, but they would, Allison would just be in there in the distance and, you know, completely unconscious and intubated, and we would just join calls with her. Um, and just talk, you know, and share memories and, and talk about things that we remember and things that we really loved because obviously we couldn't be there. Uh, so that was the closest thing we could do to sort of just being with each other. And I was very lucky and very fortunate that her family included me in, in many of those. I think that has been one of the hardest parts of this for so many people and so many of the obituaries reflect it too, that even close members of the family have had profound distance and when the people can be sick at home for a while and then all of a sudden they can't breathe and they're in the hospital it's it's this very odd disease that seems stable for a period of time and then becomes very rapidly mm -hmm. unstable um these covid um um well when you were seeing her on facetime and sort of covid facetime sessions were you able to actually was there some catharsis in that for you or or it was too far away to that's too a remote? that's a great question um i i remember the first time that her parents invited me to one of these covid zooms as as we said and i remember calling my mother and weeping and and asking her should i join this call um because I don't know that it would be good for me to see her like this and to see her, you know, lifeless and with tubes and every and everywhere that I could see. And um, but I also said, you know, if I don't join this and I don't, there's the off chance that she could hear me. Um, I would regret that forever. Um, so it, I don't know that it was cathartic uh, because it was very painful. Um, and that is sort of the last memory that I have of her, um, which is a horrifying image. Um, that will always stick in my brain. Um, so I don't know that I would describe it as cathartic, but it was something that I would have regretted not doing.
just want to remind everybody listening to COVID calls and I'm talking today to Jared Meisner, uh, who's a writer and whose best friend, Allison Schwartz, passed away of COVID-19 this year. And he's talking about that experience, living it and writing about it. And so you went back um, to the writing after she died. I can't help but think, it, putting myself in in your position, that that first piece would be something I would write almost as a as a a flag, like a stake in the ground to say this is where this stops. I'm I'm saying sick is okay, but nothing beyond that. I would not want to have to write that second piece, but you did it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's not something I ever wanted to write. Um, but as as Writing is a very cathartic uh, process for me, and that was, I was very, you know, in a, in a way fortunate to have an outlet where I could project those emotions and that grief um, and share it with others in a way that could help others or could help others process that emotion. Um, it was a horrifying thing to write, and I would wish that upon no one, uh, but it was, at the same time, uh, I was very fortunate to have that outlet. And how did people react on social media? Um, first of all, I guess, uh, in terms of her own social media, a lot of people's social media pages are repositories of concern and care and sense of loss, but also great humor and memory. Um, I don't know if, if, it's, if you feel comfortable sharing, but I mean, how did people react to her on Facebook or in other uh, social media that she used? Sure. Um, you know, I wrote about this concept in the, the New York Times piece that I wrote. It was a fascinating thing to, to look at and to consider when somebody dies and people are uploading stuff or memories or um, posts about them and tagging them specifically. And, and they will never be able to see these posts. They will never be able to do it or to, to do anything with them, to add them to their own profile. Um, you know, there was an outpouring of love and memories, which I obviously appreciated. But at the same time, it's it's very interesting and morbid to think about that that's what uh, 2020 has become, where we share digital obituaries of people um, that they will never be able to see. And we sort of do it um, as an announcement, because if we didn't announce that on Facebook or we didn't announce that on Instagram, people would wonder why. Um, and so it's sort of for other people, not even for that person. Um, and it's a bizarre concept to think about that. Um, but, you know, with regard to, you know, my social media and, and what I saw, I was the obviously people who I'm connected with via social media, obviously very much knew that we were, were very close. Um, so that was at the same time, a, a nice, way for people to express grief and mourning um, in a way that we could not be together. Um, and that was a way that people could sort of digitally, you know, if you will, hug, you know, send hugs and things like that. In this uh, October 6th piece that you mentioned, which everyone must read, it's in the New York Times, my best friend is gone and nothing feels right. And, and you, I'm just going to give a couple of lines from it because, uh, because it really taps into something I hadn't thought of. You said, I uploaded a 17-page letter Allison had written me in 2012 as we prepared to graduate from journalism school and begin our adult lives. It earned some 300 views, so I guess people liked it. How does one measure the support of digital grief anyway? Would I have, would I have loved her more if my story had received 400 views? Would our friendship mean more if a few more people had sent crying emojis in response? Uh, I mean, you have tapped into some sort of fundamental shift, I think, that's underway this year in our collective sense of inadequacy and grieving. It's, um, it's an interesting, interesting and bizarre concept of, you know, and this was the case before. COVID came where social media creeps into every aspect of our lives and we find out news from people's announcements on their social media platforms. Um, but even more so now when we can't be together, it's it's a bizarre thing to grieve someone digitally um, when, as I mentioned, you know, those 
story reactions don't mean anything. Um, it's just someone pressing a button and it, it just doesn't mean anything. Um, and so it's a bizarre thing to think about expressing grief in a very digital and exclusively digital way. So this is your stock and trade. You're, you're a social media expert. True. A writer, a communicator. I mean, in a sense, your your job, your you know, the the thing you're you think about every day is how to get people to slow down, stop, and read something instead of just scrolling along. And at the same time, you seem to be indicating that that maybe there's a limit to that, or that there's some things we just haven't learned yet, and grieving may be one of them. Um, how to cope with death in that way. Do you think that's changing right now? Very good question. I think I think that it has been changing for a while, and I think it will obviously just continue on the path that it is, where, as I've said, you know, if you're not announcing something personal to you on your social media platforms, then did it really happen? Um, because... You know, and deaths are very much included in that. A job, a, you know, a job promotion, a marriage, and those are all included in in what people expect you to announce on social media now, which is a very bizarre concept to think about how we did that before um, and how we announced these things digitally before these digital platforms existed, um, and how we let people know that someone had gotten married or that we had gotten engaged or all of these different things. And it's a it's a insidious sort of creep into our lives in all these different manners and and death is very much included in that the other piece of that that i think of is that without these media you and i wouldn't be having this conversation right now so that's probably true it's a and i've been thinking about this a lot i've talked with lots of guests about this the the in lots of interesting ways i mean even the way we think about what um, what research is in the social sciences where we need to be together to have an interview. You need to go to the field to have a, a to learn something. And these things that involve travel, that involve physical proximity with another person, they involve awkwardness and all of the things that uh, are going to a music show and, and not just hearing the music through your computer, but actually bumping elbows with people in the show. So we're up against this in lots of different ways. And constantly, I feel like asking ourselves, is this experience authentic or not? Mm. And it, it strikes me in the writing that, that you've done about Allison, that was one of the things you were also really trying to convey, was real authenticity of your own emotion how, and, or, and real authenticity also of her as a human and her, her humor. You just sort of laid it all out there. And so even though we didn't get to meet Allison, and we weren't privy to this experience, you've opened it up to a very wide audience through the writing and then the digital expression of the writing. It's, a, it's an interesting sort of duality of the, the authenticity of, of just general grief and general emotion, um, and then the struggle to convey that authenticity through a social media you know, comment or something. Um, so I think it's it's easier to express one's own grief and one's own emotion than to respond to that emotion. And I think that that's where people struggle with. Um, obviously, people can find out about the news through your social media platforms, things like that. But I think it's very difficult for people to express and respond to uh, a, another person's grief, especially online, because you know putting in responding or reacting with a Facebook crying emoji or replying, you know, sorry to hear that. Um, it doesn't do a whole lot um, and it feels inauthentic and it feels um, like I should be doing more. And this is not to say that people didn't do more. I was overwhelmed with the response from people and from the letters I received and the messages I received. Um, so that's not to say that I didn't receive really beautiful things, um, but I think people struggle with that. And, you know, people struggle with responding to death in person as well. It's just a really hard thing to respond to and to deal with and to process. Tell us a little bit about some of those letters and emails and personal communications you've received. How has your story touched others? Um, the Honestly, the ones that have 
that I will remember forever are the strangers that reached out to me um, after the New York Times piece ran. Um, and it was the, the number of people who just found me on Facebook or on Instagram and, and sent me messages, you know, apologize, always apologizing first that they were reaching out to a stranger. And um, my, my response would always be, don't ever apologize for sending love out into the world. Um, we all need more of that. Um, but, you know, people would send me notes on Facebook or Instagram and, and just saying, you know, my fiance died or my best friend died and, you know, not necessarily of COVID um, and just, you know, said that I've been struggling with these emotions that you put on paper um, and I, this really meant a lot to me. Um, and so those were, those are the things that will always stick out to me and always, um, I will always remember just coming from complete strangers who are expressing kindness um, and empathy. Um, for people who understand what you're going through. A reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls. You can get your questions in for Jared Meisner. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, just put them in the YouTube live chat. Or if you're watching on Periscope, you can just put them in Twitter and be sure to tag me at US of Disaster. Um, I wanted to um, ask you, you know, Jared, oftentimes in, in cases um, where there's a chronic disease issue, an epidemic or a disaster, it's family and friends who then become, and survivors, um, who become advocates. You, you have some moral authority to speak because you've suffered. Uh, and, you know, history shows us that there have been actually profound moments of policy change, memorial formation, outcomes that maybe people thought even weren't, weren't possible um, when sort of sufferers and mourners become advocates. There's not a lot of anger in your writing, um, but there seems to be a lot of sort of emotional resolve there. And I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, is this um, testimony that you've given, is this, is this going somewhere? Are there other um, friends and family members who are looking for some sort of redress? What can make what can make it right? I guess is a, is a one way to think about it. Although that's kind of a simplistic formation. What would you like to have happen? And and I guess you're part of a community now. It's sure. not a community you asked to be part of, but you're part of it, and you're you're writing from that community. It, you know what I what I would like to happen is, and I talked specifically to her mother and father a lot about this when it was going on, but. You know, what I would have liked to happen were was for there to be some sort of national response to this and for people to actually have gotten into gear uh, before it became what it has. Um, so I don't know that I have immediate sort of desires of um, what I want this to become or what I want it to be besides obviously having nobody else experience the, the deep visceral grief that we had to experience because of this. Um, but I would also be remiss in saying that I wrote it for, you know, these articles for my own benefit. You know, I wrote them so others could read them and I wrote them so others could consider that. And especially the New York Times piece, you know, I knew that people in power, people with positions of, you know, change-making abilities would read that and would recognize that this is destroying lives. Um, so I, I would be remiss in saying that I just wrote it for my own benefit and my own coping because there was a there was an element of that where I wrote that for that reason. So in, in a sense, I mean, we've, we've had an election now. There'll be a, a change of administration. Um, you're looking for a national response to the pandemic. Of course. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's. It's. Frustrating is an understatement of that word that we that we've come to this, um, and it's just you know we our hospitals are being overwhelmed, and we're supposed to be the you know the wealthiest country in the world, and it's just a frustrating, angering thing to think about that it didn't have to be this way, um, and if you know her mother and I specifically discussed that this was. There was a reason uh, that she died, and there's always so many what ifs that we think about, so many what ifs that we that we could ponder. But we did talk about 
what if, um, you know, Secretary Clinton had been the president, would she still be alive? Um, and it's not helpful to ask those questions. It's not, it doesn't resolve anything. It doesn't fix anything. Um, but that is a horrifying question that we had to ask and that I actually don't know the answer to. What do you think would be an appropriate um, memorial or sort of form of memory for COVID-19 sufferers and those who've died? Gosh. Um, you know, I think there's something powerful about being together again. Um, COVID has ripped us all apart as a society, as a community. Um, and we long for just being together again. And that's all I want to do right now is just sit in a car with Allison and go on a road trip with her. And so I think, you know, specifically with regard to my grief and, and my situation, just call your best friend, text your best friend. Um, you know, we don't do that enough and just let them know, him or her know that, you know, you love them and you're thinking about them. And that's what I've taken from this. And I hope that others can take from that as well. You mentioned in the New York Times piece also that Allison was the kind of friend that uh, sometimes when the phone call came, your the spouse has to be, it's like, I'll talk to you in a couple hours. And I wanted to think about that a little bit, a little bit more because, um, you know, families and are always changing. And so I guess I wonder with her death, how your relationships how others have coped with that with you and, and how your other relationships have changed. Um, her, you know, it's interesting. I've, my relationships with, with people have, have become more meaningful, have become deeper because I've sort of adopted this, this mantra of what would Allison do? Um, and Allison was the kind of person who, you know, as I wrote in her obituary, her one of her last things she did was she sent a gift card to her college roommate who was a nurse um, just to thank her for what she was doing. Um, and this has created a sort of empathy in me that I was physically incapable of feeling before because I had never experienced this. You know, you can, it's one thing to feel bad for somebody. It's one thing to have sympathy for them, um, but to have empathy for someone that, that is new for me. I have not, I have been lucky enough to not have tragedy or misfortune like this before. So it's, it's created a sense of what can I do for this person uh, to make that person know that he or she is loved. Um, and I think that that's an important and valuable uh, lesson and tool that we can all use. And unfortunately it came about because of this horrific situation. Um, but in a way, it's made me a better person, and which is such a cliche thing to say. Um, and she would hate that. Uh, but it really has. You know, I, I'm, I, when one of my friends, when one of his best friends died, uh, unrelated, um, just from a random heart attack, you know, I, I sent him ice cream um, through DoorDash. And I don't know that I would have done that uh, before because I don't know that. I would have recognized how much that meant to me uh, when people sent things like that to my door and just thinking of me. Um, so it's made me a better person just thinking about what Allison would have done. I, I, don't, I don't think that's cliche at all. I think it's incredibly useful personally. And it's, Sure. I mean, it's an emotion that, you know, it's, it's become a trope at this point that the world and the country specifically can use more empathy, but it really, really does mean something and go a long way um, to really just be able to empathize with somebody and to understand them and to sit with those emotions and, and to deal with them together. like that's particularly meaningful right now in this year in this country with everything that we've seen because there are strong actions um, from too many in our government including at the top yeah. which have sought to play down the danger 
even deny the existence in some quarters, uh, mm. or to say that those who died were going to die of other things anyway. Many different excuses. It's very hard for me to not be very angry about that. And so what, it strikes me what you're describing is like matching that with empathy, putting something else out there as an alternative that people can can turn to. Uh, I don't know if you see yourself in that way, but it those who've had the courage, and I think of Kristen Arquiza right now, whose father died and mm. um, she spoke at the Democratic National uh, Convention. And she's, you know, she kind of went out there and said, you know, the president's wrong and the governor was wrong. And I'm here to say this death didn't have to happen. And it okay. provided something else for us to try to latch on to other than just to feel either, number one, completely powerless or to let that anger somehow build up in a way that I'm not sure it can be released or what it would add up to. Um, you know, the woman you referenced specifically, um, incredibly powerful story, and I'm so glad uh, that she spoke as she did um, because she's right, and I completely agree with her um, and her sentiments. You know, that's just just not who I am as a person. I've never been sure. an, angry, an angry person. Um, and in a way, I honestly think that I'm too sad to be angry. Um, and whether that be the stage of grief that I'm in or or maybe it's just that I'm compartmentalizing those feelings and so I don't have to deal with anger as well. Um, I don't know which of those it might be, but I have not felt anger um, specifically toward one person or or another, um, even though we have asked those questions, you know, if if someone else had been the president or if someone else had been the leader of, of this, would this have happened? Um, so those questions have been asked and I've, I've thought about that a lot. Um, but I think because I don't, I'm not sure of the answer, I can't assign blame to one person specifically and so I can't be angry. And also it doesn't do me any good to, to be angry. Um, it's not gonna fix anything, it's not gonna do anything. You know, my my outlet of letting people know about this was was writing about her and sharing her story and helping people empathize with that and recognizing that it could be my best friend, it could be my mother, um, and letting people know that this is a very real thing and, you know, your life could be next. It could affect you next. And I think that that's the, the, tact that I sort of, uh, the tactic that I sort of adopted. So I wanted to ask you, we have a few minutes left in the in the discussion, and just to remind folks, you can still get questions in or comments for, for Jared. Just put them in the YouTube live chat or put them up on Twitter. Um, you have written this year in what I think will be the defining genre of our times, which is obituary. And I don't know if you'd ever written one before. It's incredibly challenging. And mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit as a as a writer, what that is like, how you choose what details mm. to include, how you find the right tone. I mean, I read obituaries all the time now, and I had Alex Goldstein on, who is the creator of Faces of COVID, and he puts a lot of them up every day, and and um, we talked about that, and it's. I think it is. It's a genre that's always sort of there in the newspaper, and people, you know don't often pay attention to it. And now it, it is a defining way that we're connecting with each other in these times. Yeah, and that's a really sad sentence to say, um, but that's true. Um, you know, I think I approached it the same way that I approach anything I write. Um, you know, my job as a writer is to get you to read the first sentence and then the next sentence and then the next sentence after that. So if I write something boring, you'll probably tune out and you'll X out of the screen or you know, put the newspaper down. Um, and so I never wanted that to happen. And that's how Allison and I approached everything we wrote was that everything, you know, we were very, very focused on, you know, we would call it flowery, flowery writing um, and writing that is just enjoyable to read. Um, so that's how I approached this as, as difficult as it was. I didn't want it to be boring. Um, I didn't want it to be the staid sort of uh, formulaic template of an obituary. Um, you know, it's a celebration of, of her life and it's a rec recognizing that she was an individual. She has this unique story to tell and that obituary is sort of the penultimate chance to tell that story. 
So I think that that's, and it's also what she would have wanted. Um, so thinking about her as an individual specifically, you know, it wouldn't, I wouldn't have worked for everybody and it wouldn't have been the tone that, you know, for example, my mother-in-law would have wanted or would want, um, but it's what Allison would have wanted. Um, and so I think that's important to, to match the person um, and to tell that person's story as well. Did you find in the in the writing that you were surfacing memories that you had forgotten? I mean, was was the writing act itself? Um, you may not want to say, but I I can imagine that you you know you you're replaying the sort of uh, mental you know the movie of all the many experiences that you had. It must have brought forward things maybe you'd even forgotten. It did, um, and that was. Again, we've talked about, you know, writing as a coping mechanism for me. And so that was part of it was that what am I going to write? Um, and so I had to think about, you know, all of these things that I maybe tucked away uh, for a while and or, you know, were not always at the top of mind uh, when I thought about her. But when it comes down to, you know, writing a piece in The New York Times or writing a piece in, you know, just her obituary, you know, what little tiny nuances do I want people to know about her? And so it, it did. It brought up a lot of things that, you know, weren't. I didn't think about every day. I didn't think about every month even. Um, but the things that um, really stuck out to me, like there was an inside joke in the New York Times piece about uh, when the chickens came to roost. And that was something that, you know, we would reference very infrequently, but it's it perfectly encapsulated sort of just like the relationship of a best friend. Um, and you can reference something that you haven't thought about in a year, um, but that you still laugh uncontrollably about when you when you hear it again. Do you plan to do more writing about the relationship now that it's, and the way you talk about it, it's, a, it's your friend has died, but the relationship is still there. It's a part of your life and, and you've shared it with others. You want, do you want to keep writing about it? I could write about Alison Schwartz for years. <laughs> um, and so if someone gave me the opportunity, I could write a book about her. Yeah, that's, I, I think I, I just have to say, I mean, there must be a lot of people listening to this right now and who will listen, um, who will and should get on the phone and call their friend, call their best friend. Please do. But also who would think, God, I, uh, I hope I have a, Jared Meisner level friend who would who would wrestle with so much to try to tell to tell this story in the people who reached out to you that must be one of the themes that people have tapped into as well I would think yeah um, for sure and I you know it she was I was very fortunate um, my life was made better by her um, you know, at the very end of the New York Times piece that I wrote, you know, I included a bit about how she wrote a passage from the Velveteen Rabbit at my wedding about what it means to be real and what it means um, to be loved, essentially. Um, and it's, you know, she threw me the only surprise party I've ever had uh, when I was December of our freshman year in college, when she had known me for three months. She gathered a couple friends up. Uh, drove up from West Palm Beach to Clearwater, where I lived, which is you know a three or four hour drive, I think. Um, surprised me with a cake and streamers and balloons and gifts at this local park, um, and then just drove back that night. Um, and so, you know, to to express that sort of love for an individual, um, I'm better because of it, and I I very much hope that I very much hope that everybody has that relationship with somebody because it is very, very special. Just want to remind everybody, you've been listening to COVID calls and been talking to Jarrett Meisner today, whose best friend, Allison Schwartz died of COVID-19. And I'll make sure that um, I'll tweet out and send out uh, the different articles you've written, Jared. I hope everybody will explore those uh, in Charlotte Magazine and also in the New York Times. Um, Jared, thank you so much for taking this time today it's uh, it's meant a lot um and the notes i'm getting here it means a lot to other people so um thanks thank you so much for having me it's um it's a it's good to talk about her so thank you so much for having me everybody you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m eastern time tomorrow i will be talking with a couple of 
super genius researchers, uh, Megan Curran and Zach Perlin will be talking about poverty and the long-term economic impact of the pandemic. And until then, stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock. Thanks again, Jared.